0: OK. Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. This is a Tuesday episode. So as usual, we're with our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Good
1: morning, Bradley. We're really happy to be back here at P T and Yeah.
0: 180 Orchard Street in Manhattan, B- bookstore, podcast studio. Please come here and spend some money. Do you uh, think
1: I, I, yeah. Does Ron DeSantis' book come out this week? And if so, will it be I in the
0: store? I, we will sell books that the public wants to read. Now, I will note that I don't think our customer base wants to read it. What was interesting was, you know, it was a huge seller everywhere and not at PT Network. What's that? The Prince Harry book.
1: Okay. Did it sell at all here?
0: Like five copies.
1: Five copies. Nobody wanted it.
0: Which, by the way, I kind of loved about our customers. Right. I mean, I'd rather sell more books. It would help. But, yeah, I was going to say. But, <laughs> but I did, I did kind of love that our customers. So um, I have not talked to Julie about the DeSantis book.
1: Um, would What would you say if she gave over the entire front of the store? It is coming out tomorrow. It's called The Courage to be Free. It sounds amazing. <laughs> if she thought that
0: that would sell enough books and would not <laughs> long-term damage the store's right. reputation, then yeah, I would be yeah, fine with it. Probably
1: would long-term damage the... Uh, yeah. I,
0: would, I would ask her whether, why she thought that was a good idea, but... Um,
1: well, the bookstore is kind of incredible. I was I was in here last week, and it was very busy, and there was just a great vibe here too. So yeah, whatever. look
0: this. Other than the fact that this bookstore is a phenomenal way to light money on fire, there's nothing about it I don't like. I like the team. I like the books that we sell. I like a little more fiction, but I like the books that we sell. Podcast studio has been a hit. The event space is used almost every night, and we get really high level authors in. The cafe makes good coffee. Like it is a. Everything that I would have said, here's what I want it to be. Yeah, that's great. It is. I would just like to lose a little less money. Right. Well, maybe that'll happen.
1: Um- Let's talk about state politics. I mean, everybody's Monday morning. Well, it's a Tuesday morning for y'all. It's me. It's a it's a it's a Monday morning for me and Bradley. But um, we're talking about uh, there's a great article by Ross Barkin last week about the sort of collapse of the um, New York State Democratic Party, which we've actually talked about on our on our podcast before we talked about it um, right after the election. So it's not it's not hot news, but the analysis was pretty interesting focused on the state chairman, the party chairman, a guy named Jay Jacobs.
0: And kind of the internecine warfare between the far left and the center. I think Ross captured it pretty well, although Ross' tendencies tend to be probably more sympathetic with the far left. But, you know, I think what the article made me conclude, and I'm not sure this is sort of what anyone else did, but is why, why do we have to have a state party, right? Like, I understand it's convention and tradition and they have a function of collecting resources and then refunding them out to candidates and all of that. But their returns are terrible, right? They have a horrible track record. They don't have any you You're just talking about the Democratic Party. The State New York Part. State yeah. Democratic Party. Yeah. They lose consistently races they should win, whether it's in the primary or the general. There's no sense of who they are, what they believe in, what they stand for, or anything else. And here's what I know— if my venture capital fund was not producing returns for my investors on a regular basis, I would not be able to raise more venture capital funds. Right. The New York State Democratic Party is not producing returns for Democratic candidates, and therefore, why does it have to exist in the first
1: place? Well, so who is it producing returns for? I mean, if... No, if one, Jay- so I,
0: I, th- I think when, when Cuomo was governor, it was just an appendage of his campaign, and I don't think it produced much returns there either, but it was a way to further circumvent fundraising laws, and it was a way... For someone who the only thing in life that ever mattered was exertion of power, it was yet another way for him to exert power. A guy Jay, he could Jay, put
1: his thumb on. Yeah, Jay
0: Jacobs is just, a, does you know, does whatever the governor says. Um, I, I don't know Jay, he's probably perfectly... Have you ever met him? Nope, probably perfectly nice guy. He spends his time running summer camps. Um, but um, but clearly doesn't have any vision or anything other than he likes the title of being chairman of the Democratic Party. Hochul... Is doing it the way Cuomo does it, because I think that she tends to do things the way they've been done. Um, But I don't, given that her margin of victory was pretty low, to the extent that the party was used, it was certainly not used effectively. So here would be just another way to think about it, which would be, what's the point of the party? It's, it's to collect money from big donors and then redistribute them to viable candidates.
1: Right, coordinate candidates to make sure you got the best people in each right. race and, and, and cultivate the next generation of... Right.
0: Now, right. a really good state party might say, okay, we can you know, use efficiencies and, and scale by having a combined grassroots campaign, for example, and therefore we can save money because we're not recreating the wheel every single time. And there are sta- some state parties that clearly do that, right? Um, but New York does not, right? There's no It's just money in cash in, cash out. It's, it's, it's just like a, a, a bank account. So um, as a result, they don't achieve any efficiencies of scale. So then it just becomes a question of, okay, if they're just making investment choices, right? Are they investing and in picking the right candidates? Right. And in a state like New York, which is so overwhelmingly Democratic... When someone like George Santos gets elected, when the entire House of Representatives in Congress slips because you lost all of your races on Long Island, I think it's a pretty clear argument that you are not investing
1: well. Kind of interesting, too, that Jacobs is based in Long Island, too, and that's yeah. where the real bloodbath was.
0: Yeah, I mean, and the, the fact that, look, and this is not just on the state party, this is on the C, this is on the zoning campaign, nobody fucking thought to check whether anything George Santos said may or may not have been true. Uh, and a failure by the media as well. Um, and New York Times doing it post election doesn't mean very much, I would say. But, um,
1: <laughs> but it's almost more embarrassing. Yeah,
0: but but they failed on that front as well. And so so here's another way to think about it, which is, you know what, the the best candidates tend to win elections, right? And one of the things that the best candidates do is they have friends who establish super PACs for them, and those super PACs are effective in advocating for resources. So there's, if you take Corey made a, a very helpful list of all the big donors to the state Democratic Party. So you have uh, PACs like the trial lawyers, the hospitals, the dentists, you have really rich people. Like the dentists
1: are up there at the top.
0: Jim Dolan or Doug Durst or the Tisch family. Um, you have the Greater New York Management Corporation, which is sort of the, the business side of the hospitals, casino interests, AT&T, Verizon, Airbnb, all kind of all the usual suspects, right? And so these people are giving money to, A, curry favor with the governor because they think it will help them in something else, uh, which which arguably is something we should not want to encourage, right? right. That's off corruption. Um, and B, presumably, if they're giving to the state party, they're interested in seeing uh, state party candidates backed win, right? right? Which they're not. Right. So let's just make this a true competition, you know. The there's no secret as to who the rich people are and who the donors are, because it's all publicly disclosed. And let every campaign and every candidate fight it out, you know, and the ones who really manage to convince these people to give them money are likely the ones that will probably succeed. And the ones that can't convince them probably are going to lose anyway. So let's introduce Darwin into this concept and get rid of Jay Jacobs.
1: So what's, what's needed for that to happen? It's just the governor could just be like, yeah, I agree with you, Bradley, well, I let's mean, what's, do it. What's
0: needed is is a different mentality of thinking. I mean, how is this different than 20 other things I bring up on this podcast every week, which is here's an entirely different way to look and do, look at something and do something that doesn't happen because people are very comfortable with either the status quo or with power and not interested in risking losing power just to try to accomplish something good. So that's not going to happen here either because Jay Jacobs— likes whatever title he has. Kathy Hochul doesn't want to... She thinks that having control of the party is helpful to her politically. I don't think she actually executed that, but she thinks that clearly. So um, will anything happen? No. Uh, But if you were just being logical and saying, what's the right answer to a failing organization... It's kind of like our school system, right? We just have these failing fucking schools, and our only answer is to throw more and more money at them. And whenever a viable answer like a charter school comes up, what happens? The system rises up and kills it, right? And so, you know, uh, this is this is why our country often doesn't improve, which is the status quo has a huge uh, constituency, and they know how to play the game, and as a result, change is incredibly hard to come by. I mean, Barack Obama was the candidate of change, decent, good man, okay president, changed very little, right? Did the ACA, which was great, and pretty much nothing else. Um, And so this podcast, at least the way I see it, is while we can't affect change on everything we talk about, we do affect change on certain things like voting, and hunger, and abortion, and tech stuff, and whatever else. Um, I'm not even a Democrat, so I'm certainly not going to spend any time uh, on the Democratic State Party, but, you know, happy to at least give away some ideas. And the first idea, I'd gladly give them for free, is get rid of the fucking State Party.
1: <laughs> right. Um, there's an election in Chicago Tuesday, today, if yeah. yeah. you're listening to this. Um, Lori Lightfoot, excellent name, Lori Lightfoot. That's uh, um, She uh, could well be the first Chicago mayor in 34 years to lose an election, which is kind of incredible. Yeah. Um uh, there's nine candidates. There's going to be a runoff. Um, what, what? I guess what is happening there that is relevant? I guess first of all, to you as a as a New Yorker, you have Chicago roots and ties. You 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 obviously care about what happens to the city. Um, what's what's uh, what's at stake I mean, I, in this race? it's
0: kind of good and bad, right? Okay. The the bad is um, Chicago is a mess, right? Chicago schools are just as bad as ours. Chicago's crime is even worse. Uh, gun the statistics
1: violence. on crime—every time you see them in Chicago, you just sort of can't believe it. Yeah, they
0: just never. It, I, the way I'd always understood it was, they have such an entrenched gang problem right. that this, even if, see here, before when I lived there, the stats were always bad, but the reality was it was limited to the west side and the south side where the gangs were, and there really wasn't that much shooting and violence in the rest of the city. It has now become pervasive throughout the city. And look, it's not acceptable whether it's only on the south and west side or throughout the city, but the difference is political. The difference is... Now, voters who are used to being safe, voters who are not looking to have their lives be disrupted through crime or violence or anything else, are all of a sudden looking at the status quo and saying, this isn't working, and the candidate who's ahead right now, we'll see who wins, it's a really tight race, a guy named Paul Vallis. Vallis is a kind of career politician and education expert, he's been the superintendent of a couple of different school districts, I'm not sure to any particularly good results, but he's done that, he runs for office constantly, um... Uh, But he has taken a far right tack in this particular race. He's been endorsed by the cops.
1: Far right for For Chicago. For for Chicago. Yeah.
0: Um, And as a result, whenever non traditional primary voters who feel unsafe feel that way, they tend to engage a lot more, whether it's in a primary general election. That's how Rudy Giuliani became mayor here in 1993, that's how Mike Bloomberg became mayor here. In two thousand and one, and if Lori Lightfoot loses, and look, Lori's really smart, and she has some good ideas, and you know. But but with that said, you have to look at the reality of: does my city feel safe? Does it feel clean? Are the schools functioning? Are the parks okay? Like city, what makes city government so wonderful in many ways is that it's so tangible and concrete. It's not this like Congress passed a bill and twenty years later there'll be a couple of books to determine what by some PhD students whether or not it worked, right? This is like in real time, you know, I've said this before, I'll say again when my first job out of college was at the parks department here, and I was the spokesman. And the thing that hit me pretty quickly that I think was just, you know, an incredible thing for me to understand and my ability to do the job was eight and a half million people live here. They all rely on the quality of the parks. Just about everybody uses some park at some point. If the parks are clean and safe, 8.5 million people have a higher quality of life. If the parks are dirty and dangerous, they have a lower quality of life. It's that binary. So that's city government, and it is binary. And I think when things get bad enough, the reason why, so in 2017, I launched an independent effort that I paid for to get rid of Bill de Blasio as mayor here. And my argument was, look at the way he's running the city. It's going to fall apart. But because you had... 12 years of Bloomberg before that, where Mike created so much good governance and so many good processes and stock the administration with so much talent, it was kind of able to kind of keep the lid on things for the first four years. And so as a result, even though things ended up where they were, and I was sounding the alarm, you had two problems, three problems. One, voters didn't really see it yet, right? right. They weren't feeling it. Two, um, the people who would privately agree with me had cut their own private deals with City Hall and whatever their issues were. And so as long as they were getting what they needed, they weren't going to rock the boat. And three, the candidates that could have beaten de Blasio in their primary didn't have the balls to run. So like, you know, people who wanted to be mayor and, and tried at different times in their careers and lost, that was their chance. But again, that required looking at things in an unconventional way and taking risks. Now, de Blasio got something like 71% of that vote in the primary, which sounds like a lot but 29% of people showed up just for the purpose of voting against him. When
1: they knew it When they knew there was no possibility
0: right. of, of him actually losing. So you're telling me that if a viable candidate that had full support and millions of dollars um, ran, that they couldn't have picked up 22% more of that vote? Maybe they wouldn't have, but I think it would have been pretty fucking close.
1: So how do you look back on that, uh, on that period in your life, specifically on the de Blasio thing, if you, if you, knowing what you know now, would you not do it? It's, um, so
0: it, it's a great question because a lot of things in my life and my worldview have changed a lot since then. So there's multiple ways. How do I look at it from a personal perspective, a moral perspective, and a business perspective, right? From a personal perspective, if you ask me today, I would say, no, I would not do it. And here's why. Um, I'm not the messiah, right? The entire world's problems are not mine to solve. And we can have a bad mayor in New York City, Without me single-handedly saying, "Well, Bradley, you have to change that," right, and putting this incredible amount of pressure but on. But you knew that so. then,
1: right? That's not different. Or I, did you? I
0: think at the time, A, you know, I wouldn't have done it if I thought I didn't have a chance at all, right? right? And and B, um, I up until fairly recently, we talked about this was this part of the result of the ketamine therapy that we talked about last week genuinely believe that everything absolutely, you know, was my obligation. And on one hand, it led me to do a lot of really good things, and I think it led me to be proactive with people who needed my help in, in different ways, whether it's friends or hungry kids or whatever it is. But at the same time, it's a terrible way to live, right? Because you can't solve all the world's problems and uh, you just put yourself out there and get the shit beat out of you. So look, I still do it on things that I believe in. Obviously, I speak my mind on this podcast every week. I do it in my column, my books, my teaching, um, and then in our work, out of the foundation, out of the fund, everything else. But with that said, I, I can't solve all the world's problems. And so today, I mean, I, th- I don't think Eric Adams would deserve the de Blasio treatment, but let's say he did. I do not think that I would single-handedly do something. Now, if a bunch of people came to me, and I thought that there was a viable coalition where I'm not going to be the only one putting in the money, not the only one taking the political beating, Right, I'd consider it, but I don't need to be the fucking... I, try to be the messiah.
1: How close do you think you got in terms of like in the room with with a candidate who... Got close. Not close? It, I, not I, close? I, I got
0: close in that every viable candidate met with me. And talked about it. Yeah, because everyone yeah. is flattered by the idea of, of someone who had been Mike Bloomberg's campaign manager saying, I think you could win, right? Right. But at the end of the day, it it took balls, and and none of them had it. And it took vision, and none of them had it. So that's the the personal personal answer. Professionally, on one hand, you could say it was bad for us. One, I took on City Hall, and then there was an entire four more years of their administration where they fucking hated us. So from the political consulting side of our business, not particularly helpful, right? On the other hand, here's what I think it did. And maybe this is just me making myself feel better in, in retrospect, but... Because by myself, I said, fuck this, this guy's a terrible mayor, I'm going to try to do something about it. I started paying for ads and having press conferences and doing all this stuff. It came off as crazy. And, and <laughs> on one hand, crazy's bad, and I think it certainly scared away probably potential clients. I think our LPs generally don't like investing in people who are crazy. On the <laughs> other hand, I would argue that it changed the perception of not just me, but of our work completely. And I think as we run campaigns in New York and beyond, but especially in New York, there's always a fear in the back of the mind of whoever it is we're talking to that, like, they could do this to me too. Right. Uh, And I think that has been enormously effective for the business. It was not why I did it. I didn't see this as a a benefit when it happened. I didn't even identify it as a benefit when it happened. Um, But I do think that it distinguished us from every other Consultant in New York because everyone else purely does does safer stuff. The safer stuff and where the money is. It's and like I that I Thomas Shelling
1: theory about dancing on the cliff. Remember that one? No. Like if you're if you if you I guess if you're wrestling on the cliff with somebody else, you'd need to convince them that you're crazy enough to throw both of you off the cliff. Correct. And then, and then you win. <laughs>
0: That's what I did. So um, so yeah, I I think that uh, it had some ancillary benefits. It had some ancillary flaws and problems to it. I did the right thing for the right reason, but not because we lost, but because I can't live my life in a way where I feel obligated to solve every problem every day, and I don't have to be the only person speaking truth to power. Um, I wouldn't do it again for my own well-being. Right.
1: So let's let's just close like close the loop on Chicago. Uh, is there anything that Adams should be paying attention to? Yeah. There? Well, <laughs> okay. Like what?
0: I mean, one is it It doesn't matter how many good reasons you have for why it's hard to get crime down, and it doesn't matter what stats you can roll out to say, no, 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 it is better, or even what, what ways you're trying. This is, again, binary. Either it's safer or it's not safer. Now, yes, if the New York Post didn't exist, would New York City feel safer? It would, right? They certainly stir— the pot, but right. when the front page of the Post and the news every day is about some new kid in the Bronx or wherever getting shot or a tourist in Union Square or Times Square getting stabbed, right, then that creates an atmosphere of, of, of panic. Now, look, in fairness to Adams, uh, the Bloomberg world, the Giuliani world had two tools that Eric doesn't have. They had bail and they had stop and frisk. And those are two incredibly powerful tools. Stop and frisk was ruled unconstitutional. Bail has been the result of some horrible decisions by state legislators. Um, And as a result, it is much harder uh, to fight crime when you can't stop people who you think are likely carrying a gun. And even if you did stop them and and caught them, they'd be back out in the street in an hour. right? Mm -hmm. With that said... Um, and I think that the weed shops are a good example of it, and we've been talking about this for months because I wrote a Daily News column m- many months ago saying, what the fuck, why aren't you guys doing something about this? Um,
1: Say I, what that is. So, so. so there's,
0: there's, as I understand it, 1,400 illegal weed shops. If you have spent any time in New York City at all, you know exactly what I'm talking about yeah. because they literally populate every single block. Sometimes there are multiple, like where we are at the bookstore. I once walked from just Houston to Rivington, so two blocks on Orchard, five. How they all stay? I don't even know how they stay in business. I understand they don't pay taxes or licensing fees or anything else, but still, how much demand is there, right? But but putting that aside, I think we're still one legal dispensary in Manhattan and fourteen hundred illegal in New York City, right? So until um, they do something about it, it just looks like there's lawlessness. And look, if you said to me there's a world where. You know, anyone can have a a license, just like a liquor store, right? They just have to meet certain standards, as opposed to like, oh, you have to win this from the state and pay this fees and everything else. Um, That could make perfect economic sense to me. But you live in a world where there's now a feeling of lawlessness um, combined with if... Too many people have access to drugs, some bad things will happen, especially if there aren't controls over it. And while, look, generally speaking, these stores are selling cannabis, and generally speaking, cannabis is not laced with fentanyl because it doesn't make any economic sense for the people doing it to to make it that way, bad shit does happen, right? And one little thing that I would certainly do if I were City Hall and I were Kathy Hochul is I would just fucking send cops and close these places down, and yeah, well, some people on the far left scream that these are immigrant business people, and how dare you, you know, remove their right to make a living? Sure, um, will they? It seems necess- like
1: that would be pretty minor, though. Uh,
0: that was the fir- the argument early on to why they weren't doing it was they didn't want to be attacked by the left. Um, and will there be maybe a lot of those people ultimately released, overturned, reopened? Sure, it doesn't fucking matter. The point is. Go put 1,400 padlocks on doors in the next three weeks. and that. So I'll give you a corollary, and it's, it's a small one, but it was one that I've experienced, which is, so when I was in law school, I wrote a paper on, on how you would use social norm theory to get more people to comply with the leash law in New York City. I'd been at the park before law school. I went back to the department after school. I showed uh, Henry Stern, then the commissioner, my paper, and I said, can I do this? And Henry being Henry said, okay. So create this whole initiative, and the most important thing we did was for a period of time, we gave out tickets like fucking crazy. It was the best thing ever. Was just the cops doing it? It was the Parks Police. Pep, okay, the park and police they were control. they were into it, they did it? They were into it, um, and there was a photo one day, it was the cover of either the news or the post, of a Parks Police officer on mounted horseback swooping in to give someone a ticket that probably resulted in more compliance, that one photo, than anything else ever been done combined. Because once we sent the message that, A, this is wrong and shameful, you are hurting other wildlife, you're hurting other dogs, you're destroying our parks, dogs shit everywhere, everything else, once we made the moral argument and followed it up with enforcement, that did lead to change behavior. So I, I think we are at a moment where if Eric Adams doesn't want to be Lori Lightfoot, if Kathy Hochul doesn't want to be Lori Lightfoot, Um, they may have to do things that are harder and uncomfortable. But
1: But that are sitting right there for them to do. Yeah,
0: and quite frankly, do you want politicians to do that when they're risking losing office? So in some ways, the best wake-up call to the other mayors in America would be if Laurie loses.
1: Right. Um, On the the subject of sort of personal contentment, an idea that's been... um, uh, sort of gathering for us recently is the four-hour, the four-hour, the four-day work week. It's
0: a book, the four-hour work week, right?
1: Yeah, there is a. That's the Tim Ferriss. Yeah, I've never quite understood that because I've listened to that guy's podcast a bunch, and he seems to work harder than anybody alive. Yeah, so I don't yeah. know what he's talking about uh, exactly.
0: He's Talking about ways to sell books yeah, give podcast listeners.
1: Um, This is the four-day work week. Yes. Um, So I I gather there was some big trial of it. Uh, Many of the companies that did it said it was amazing. The employees said it was amazing. Everybody said it's amazing. Um, It seems to suggest that there's a direct uh, relationship between like how much you work and your own personal happiness, that this is the the supposition here, that the less you work, the happier you are, the more you work, the less happy you
0: are. Is that a... a- I mean, I don't, I don't entirely agree with that, because, but let's let's just say there's a subculture of people like me, and I, hopefully like you and Corey's in here, that really enjoy the work that they do. If doing the work itself brings you joy and happiness, then obviously more of it brings you more of it. That still doesn't mean that if you were to work 24 hours a day, you'd be happier than if you worked 10 hours a day. There's clearly a balance, but I like 80% of the work that I do, and some of it I really enjoy, like this. Um, and so I wouldn't want to have less of it. On the other hand, I don't know, you tell me, what percentage of people truly get joy out of the work that they do, for the way they make money for a living? 10, 20? I mean, it's,
1: it's 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 hard for me to speak for anybody, but the people I know, almost everybody I know likes their job.
0: Yeah, but you live in this right. in the bubble. You live in a high-income, high-educated world in Manhattan where people have high-paying, high-skilled jobs. Um, and let me ask a question. Don't you have firms, friends that work at law firms?
1: Uh, not close ones, but I, in, I know a few How large, about investment banks? Um, again, I know some investment how bankers. How about a place
0: like McKinsey. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think the people at McKinsey like their jobs, right? I mean,
0: because they just like making PowerPoints all day and doing nothing else.
1: Well, I mean, they have the people make the PowerPoints for them, and then they just go there and fly around uh, the world. And- well,
0: but I'll tell you, though, so a, a friend of mine...
1: <laughs> Here, here's a PowerPoint my staff was, made for I, I won't
0: name him, but he was at McKinsey, had a high-level job there, left to go with the CEO of a, a company instead. And what he said to me was when he got promoted to partner, instead of just being in Indianapolis four days a week you know, with the client... He was spending four days a week traveling from Indianapolis to Milwaukee to St. Louis to Cleveland, overseeing teams at all these clients. And it was like it was just as fucking bad, if not worse, than McKinsey. Yeah, or like ask someone as a partner at a law firm—they don't start billing less hours when they become partner, right? It, it, the, the competition never ends. So um, I believe that there are people that we both know, but I think a) we're going to know a much higher percentage of people in that category than would reflect the population as a whole, both in this I, I, I and globally. Agree with that. Yeah, yeah. And b). Um, I question whether those people all necessarily really do enjoy their work.
1: Well, still, so the four four day work week. Now, you, now you think of this a couple different ways. You're you're both uh, uh, in terms of your own like relationship to work, but then your company's relationship to work. Like like, what is the four day work week something you'd want to have at Tusk? If someone came to you and proposed it, well, what would you say? I would
0: say this. So one is um, as you know, generally open to to new ideas, right? Um, and look, we. Like everyone, we're remote work during COVID. And the truth is, we were no less productive. We were no less effective. We didn't win any fewer campaigns. Our revenue didn't go down. It went down a little bit during COVID. But overall, we did okay. And so at least tough strategies, I have not mandated a return to work. Come in if you want to. Don't come if you don't want to. If your manager says you need to come in on this day for this particular thing, then you got to do it. Um, But as you know, there are a lot of days you walk into our office and we can comfortably seat 50 and there's 10. But you guys have pretty high high standards
1: in terms of responsiveness, though. Well,
0: so the the, the reason that would make it a little hard for us specifically is at least touch strategies is in a client service business, right? And to say, okay, we're just not going to—it's one thing that the social norm is that on weekends people don't work. With that said, if a client emails someone who works for me on a Saturday and that person doesn't respond, they're not going to work here, right? So we don't have to be proactive on Fridays, on Saturdays and Sundays in the way that we are the rest of the week. But unless the entire world adopted a four-day work week so there was no expectation, so a Friday was like when you have President's Day or some sort of holiday Monday, it would be hard for us specifically. And then the Venture Fund, I think it'd be even harder because, look, this is different. You know, you are investing in people who are maniacally – Focused and dedicated to an idea that they believe they can turn into a billion-dollar business, and they don't take the, they don't Friday, they don't take Saturday off, they don't take Sunday off. And you know what? If one of my portfolio companies needs me on a Friday or Saturday, Sunday, I'm fucking there.
1: Yeah. Have you heard about this concept called bare minimum Mondays? No. Basically just means, you know, you kind of take a breather Monday. You, you're technically working, but you don't really do much.
0: Wouldn't Friday be a better day for that? Yeah.
1: Well, I guess, you know, some people have the real stress out on Sunday night. So the Monday, the sort of idea that Monday is a kind of like easy day, maybe reduce, reduces the stress on Sunday
0: night. Maybe. But l- l- let me do this. I will say, though. Bare minimum Fridays is your better idea? Yeah. So now <laughs> I'm starting to sound sort of dubious of all of this. But <laughs> uh, one thing I noticed, I think I've said this on the podcast before, so for touch strategies at least, we made it optional, and most people don't come. And I, there was a team meeting, and I said to them, look, when Mike Bloomberg was mayor, he got to his desk every day at 7 a.m. You know when I got to my desk every day? At 6.45. And if I were you, and I were ambitious like I am, and I knew that the people who run the company are all in the office every single day, I would see that as a tremendous opportunity to make an impression, to build relationships, to get ahead— Um, And you know what? I thought that there'd be sort of a big uptick in attendance after that, and that was not. And what that means, and it's okay, is I have a lot of really hardworking, talented people who care about their jobs, but they're not that ambitious. They're somewhat ambitious, right? They want to make a good living. They want to do interesting work. um, But they don't need to make the kind of money that I've made in my career. They don't need to have the kind of titles that I've had, accolades that I've had, power that I have, right? They're totally content with much, much less. And you know what? good for them. I think that's actually probably a better way to live. So um, do I think that they will be as successful as the people who really put in the sacrifices and work? No. But at the same time, with that said, is it possible that these current generation just has a much healthier attitude between the balance of work and life and that for the course of their lives will benefit them? Uh-huh, for sure.
1: Okay, so we have two more main items on our agenda and then your recommendation, but we don't really have time for both. So I'm going to have you pick and we'll push one to next week. So would you rather talk about the sort of the new survey on the state of uh, young venture capitalists um, who are kind of bummed about like the sort of closing window of opportunity um, or starting your own country? (laughs) <laughs>
0: so let's do this <laughs> let's do the VC thing because the starting in our country is a fascinating because the the of in we'll we'll country week, is like now. what are the things you would it's funny I was I was in a meeting uh, last week uh, on school meals and, and with the governor and I said look let's just assume that we wiped out all the functions of state government and started over the building wouldn't, block wouldn't feeding hungry kids be like the top three or five things that you do right I would think so right so I once I said that, and then you asked this question, so I was really intrigued by it. So let's do this. I'll answer the other one, and I will make an actual—rather than just doing it off the top of my head, Right. I'll come in next week with With, list. with Tusk? The Tusk, first 10 Tusk, things Tusklandia? if I was starting a country okay. that I think matter.
1: You're going to need a good name first. Abby
0: once, when she was like 14 or so, she wrote a state constitution for a fictional state that she would like to live in. It was very libertarian. It was interesting. Really? It was like Montana, basically, for a wow. kid that's never lived outside of Manhattan, pretty
1: much. Well, that shows you, right? You want what you don't have. Yeah. Um,
0: so here was the point I wanted to make on this. So your, your argument, or what you've been reading, is like every single industry, when things are going gangbusters, there's tons of opportunity. Everyone's making money. Everyone's having a great time. Everyone's a genius, right? right. Then when things really dry up, like they have now in tech and venture capital, it's the opposite. And all of a sudden, there aren't that many. Look, Two years ago, when we were trying to recruit people for the fund, we had to compete really hard with other venture funds to get people. Now, you know, we have an endless pick of people, and, and we just have to get it right. Um, so the first thing is, yeah, this is how it goes. Right, The good times are never going to last forever. The bad times are never going to last forever. This too shall pass. Good and bad is, is a pretty good motto to think about. Um but here's a larger point, which says to me, is it's, it's not just young VCs, but it's also just funds generally, which is, I understand if you are a Sequoia, if you are a Andreessen, you are a mega fund that's been around for a very long time, you've raised tens of billions of dollars, and your resources and your brand name and your stamp of approval provides a meaningful, tangible benefit to the companies that you invest in. I get their value proposition, Right. And I get the value proposition of people like us, you know, small niche firms that say, look, look, if you are a startup that's going to en- challenge an entrenched industry or deal with highly regulated things, you're going to have to be able to deal with these issues. And we are the one fund that can go out there and help you solve these problems. And we will do so as part of our, our work for you if you let us invest. Um, I get why we continue to do well and succeed, just like even in this down market, we still see pretty much every deal in our wheelhouse because... If you're a founder and you're worried about these problems, you need us, right? But there are just tons and tons of generalist funds where there are value parts oh, we're going to help you find engineers. We're going to help people just develop like all nonsense, right? Like it's literally an open joke in in venture. And I don't see why those funds need to exist. And certainly those, you know, $700 million Series A funds, you know, where, yeah, they might have been taking advantage of of even dumber money in in some of the LPs. Um, But ultimately, not only did they not have a value proposition in the marketplace? They lost incentive to even try to generate good returns because you have a $700 million fund, you have $14 million a year in fees annually regardless of performance. And if you said, okay, I can run this fund, you're the two managing partners for $5 million, and we get to split the remaining nine every year, you know what, it doesn't matter what the carry is because I'm perfectly happy making $4.5 million a year every year, that, that covers my nut. So um, there's been both an explosion of Funds that shouldn't really exist, funds that are too big for their fund size, and young people having unreasonable expectations about both what VC is, and then quite frankly, oftentimes when they get to the job, you know, thinking that oh, I went to you know whatever Yale or whatever it is. So as a result, let me take about Yale because I promised Bob I wouldn't keep picking on Yale. Um, (laughs) Poor Yale. I went to (laughs) I went to Wharton, uh, you know, and therefore I should only be doing the highest level strategic work with the managing partners or the CEOs of the fund. I shouldn't be figuring out what the K-1s are or doing deep diligence to build the TAM or anything else. Um, and the people with that attitude, my guess is, are mainly looking for work right now.
1: Um, your recommendation of the week. We skipped the recommendation of we the did. week last week. I, I that was my fault. That. Um, do you want to do two or do you want to just do no, one? No, I mean, okay. only one. Uh, <laughs> okay.
0: And it's I started watching on Hulu, there's a show uh, about the Wu-Tang Clan. It's, it's a fictionalized show about their creation and history. Uh, RZA, who's the main chief kind of artistic motivation behind the Wu-Tang, also wrote this show and produced it. It's fucking great. Now, look, maybe, again, it's... Fifty-year-old guys like you and me from New York, yeah. who have a particular affinity for the Wu Tang Clan in Staten Island. Well, they,
1: you know, there's there's something about them though. They they go far and wide. People, yeah, people but I have to like say, Wu-Tang.
0: it's a great show. I've watched about the first four or five episodes, and what's interesting is you sort of it's all about sort of the, the band coming together, but it's these people who all lived you know in projects and rough situations on Staten Island, and um, were involved in gangs and drugs and everything else, and each of them slowly, for different re- reasons, realizing. Oh, I also have a talent, and now it seems that there's some way I could try to apply that talent. Singing about drugs and violence is a hell of a lot better than being engaged in drugs and violence, right? Uh, I make a lot more money for a lot less risk. So you see the band coming together, you see people who are rivals... Um, in different gangs who all of a sudden you know they're all going to end up in the band together I'm always tempted to kind of keep Googling every episode as I'm watching it Yeah. Um, and I don't but I don't want to I sort of like want to say oh you know this this guy became... plus you don't know his names because they all have street names and they all have Wu-Tang names neither of these were their birth names so it takes a while to figure out who's who but it, if you like Wu-Tang at all it's a phenomenal show Till well,
1: next week Bradley thanks right, very much see you bye bye <laughs>